0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Robert Schiller with us of Yale University. He is a laureate in this, that, and about 14 other things as well. John, I thought we'd wander into the land of tariffs. Yeah. And now that folds over into a national agony on wage growth.
1: What's actually quite interesting is that the president has actually scored his first win um, without much um, media coverage on, on trade, a revamped trade deal with South Korea, maybe small at the margin. But you do wonder whether this approach of this administration can generate results. Professor Schiller, can it?
2: Well, he's got people intimidated, and I think that it has an effect on the on negotiations. I mean, it, it may have a positive effect in other areas, like North Korea. The you know he comes across as a kind of unpredictable, uh, aggressive guy, and um, I, I think he does know something about. Negotiation. Isn't that a really
1: good point, though, Professor Shitter that maybe some people are missing, that the approach towards China over the last 20 years hasn't resulted in any significant opening up of the Chinese economy under pressure just through talks, that this is probably the way to do it, using a stick rather than a <laughs> carrot?
2: <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It's not my personality. I feel <laughs> unfamiliar territory to me. But I, I, I think that a good relationship with these countries is also very important, and we're suffering from that right now. I was just in China last week, and the sense that I got was uh, these, uh, these aggressive measures are, are
0: generating some anger and hostility. Yeah. The anger and hostility, professors, you've written in Finance and the Good Society and any of your other efforts, is a societal scream in America. All of our listeners know this, the haves and the have-nots. Paul Krugman yesterday dropped on us that concept of your classes, monopsony, which mm. is a dominant coal mine miner in a coal mining town is the only employer, or maybe a rubber plantation in Malaysia where there's one rubber plantation and a lot of workers. Are, are, is America's agony here on trade actually about the monopsony of American business where they? almost can't raise wages because of the dominance of select businesses and industries.
2: I thought you were going to refer to our trade policy as exploiting monopsony or monopsony well, may, power. We,
0: we may be exploiting it in other countries, but is the agony that brings us to this trade debate because of a lack of wage growth in America, partly from monopsonistic tendencies? Oh, okay. Uh,
2: there has definitely been a lack of wage growth. Uh, is it because monopsonistic power has increased? Yeah. Uh, I don't. Know. I tend to. Well, that is, it's undoubtedly a complicated story. But I think of important reasons why wage growth hasn't been inspiring: is a uh, technological uh, replacement, labor-saving mm-hmm. uh, devices, and b uh, globalization, which continues. Do
0: they dwarf the trade debate? I mean, when the president says trade deficits are bad, is that discussion whether it's constructive or not overwhelmed by technology? Yeah, I, I you know, the, the the general notion that trade deficits are bad
2: uh, is just not supported by economic theory. Trade, de, you know, uh, trade deficits. A lot of people want to invest in the U.S., so they that that helps finance the uh, trade deficit. I don't, I don't think. It seems like uh, President Trump, in focusing so much uh, on that uh, measure, is is uh, misguided, just as he is in not re- not respecting the World Trade Organization, which is a outgrowth of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade in 1948. That was a post World War II, post Depression, post World War II act of enlightenment, uh, and now uh, we're
1: losing sight of that, Professor. Um trade deficits can be a problem if they're persistent drawn out over, over a long period of time and if they're a consequence of subsidies and protectionism well, right, which right. which China front and center right 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 that's a problem
2: well i think there are problems but i think uh, P- peter navarro uh, who is the, trump's advisor makes it into more of a war type problem than uh, you know there's 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 re- there's something to be said for uh, respect for other nations. Na- yeah. I think we want China. I, I know it's it. It can be played as a cheat on American business, but on the other hand, we we do want China to prosper. That ultimately helps international uh, accord. And uh, we have, we're talking about another massive nuclear power here. Yeah. Uh, I uh, I think uh, there could be more balance in our relations.
0: Thank you for the time today. Robert Schiller with us of Yale University. We were housing free there. Next time, we'll beat him to death about the housing market. One of the great engineering programs of America is the University of Illinois. Urbana Champagne, and that is where she was minted out of, where she studied her thermodynamics And also a little bit, she probably quoted Python when she was there. Eileen Burbage uh, uh, joins us. Um, She is, of course, definitive within the United Kingdom tech space with a lot of experience with some of the tech giants over uh, the years. We now speak with engineer Eileen Burbage. Um, If you were to speak today, Eileen, to the leadership of a beleaguered American tech industry, what would you say to them? great question um
3: first of all i'd probably ask them if i could get any sort of tips on on their future roadmaps but i would then probably try and advise them that now is a really good sort of opportunity for them to really step up and to really (laughs) demonstrate that they've got mindfulness and consumer sort of responsibility at the heart of what they do i think that's what uh, people are wanting to see i think the markets are worried about you know regulation or overstepping from the regulators and i really think the tech leadership can actually thwart that. I think they can preempt it if they sort of demonstrate and communicate that they're thinking about these issues and that they're not taking them too lightly.
0: Do you look at them as publicly traded shareholder responsible managements, or is their fiction of public ownership so great that they're basically private venture capitalists using the system while they do their tech stuff?
3: I do think, uh, not to be led too much by your great question, but I do think they've probably been given a bit of a pass. And I think, you know, with the sort of voting rights and the extraordinary sort of setups that a lot of them have, they've benefited from not having quite as much scrutiny from the markets and from other shareholders as
0: other Oh, come on. Think. They're not John Cryan over at Deutsche Bank. I mean, that's what it comes out. John Fero, well, jump- they're
1: not John Cryan over at Deutsche Bank because Facebook delivered a return of 50% on the stock that would be last true. year. John Farrow, jump <laughs> in here. <laughs> I imagine it would be a bit different for Mark Zuckerberg if he hadn't. Eileen, the news coming from, from Facebook is that they're going to make it more straightforward for users to change their, their settings and and delete data that they've already shared with with the company how big a move is that and if that's the ultimate business model now if, if you're allowed to to delete the data as an end user how do they monetize the platform as efficiently as they have over the last couple of years for the next couple of years with that a new policy setting
3: yeah, so I think it's a great step on their part, by the way, and that's the kind of reaction that I was sort of alluding to where they've got an opportunity to do these things, right, and make meaningful interventions to demonstrate that they're leading from the front. I think that the business model is not going to change because it's all on a scale. It's all on spectrum and all very relative. Should some users choose to delete all their data, Facebook, as an example, will still have more data on more people than any other platform in the world. And even should one delete their entire profile, uh, they still will have the greatest ability to sort of target and offer insights to specific groups of people based on other behavior. Um, so it's a, it's a bet worth taking, and it's actually and an sort of a feature and an option for users, which they probably should have had all along.
1: There is an overarching concern amongst some analysts out there, Eileen, on Facebook specifically, that maybe we're meeting this point of saturation for ad growth. Are we anywhere near to that?
3: I don't think so, but uh, even I've been skeptical about Facebook's ability to keep sustaining the growth that they've seen over recent years, and obviously I've been proven wrong time and time again. So I don't think what's happening now is a reason to think that they're going to be at saturation point. I think this is a minor setback and actually has much more to do with communications and user responsibility.
0: There's Silicon Fen in the United Kingdom, or I guess Cambridge Cluster is one way to – call. do they have the same arrogance over there, or is it discreet to Silicon Valley, the mess that we see Silicon Valley in?
3: Well, I think there's no other place in the world that's quite like Silicon Valley, and I think the culture is different. Uh, in Silicon Valley, having been there a number of years, we've got Silicon Roundabout, but we also have a number of great hubs across the U.K., and I do think it's it's a different culture, for sure. But there's lots to learn from both sides, to be honest. So, so
0: well, that was diplomatic. Eileen, come on. How can,
1: <laughs> within the
0: competitive landscape, whether it's an island in the East River of New York, good morning, Cornell University, or it's what's going on over in the United Kingdom, how do you people take advantage of the chaos Mr. Zuckerberg has wrought?
3: Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, there are great advantages. Even if you weren't to think about data privacy and data protection, we've got great policymakers who think about things like this in advance. So GDPR, that's going to be coming out in Europe. Yeah. But even. Specific subsectors. So, if you look at fintech or financial services, you know the policymakers here have been really helpful for innovation and have been working sort of in step with yeah. the industry. That helps a lot.
0: See that, John Farrell. That was just a window into how vicious Eileen Burbage can be. You see how Eileen she said is, it was just
3: fantastic.
1: Eileen is the nicest person in the world of tech. I <laughs> possibly she would had claw anything out to Mark Zuckerberg's ever. eyes in a heartbeat. <laughs> come Mark's,
3: on, come. When are we going to talk about cricket?
0: Well, um, give it, go, don't, don't encourage him, no. Eileen. Please. No,
1: please, please, don't encourage him. Apparently, the captain has been banned um, for uh, the Australian team for, yeah. for twelve months. I understand? Continue, Mr. Ferris. Yes, Save I know. Us. We're not going. We're, go- we're not going down the crazy road, Eileen. Um, looking forward, thinking about someone that might get shredded and have their eyes pulled out. Could be Zuckerberg, <laughs> and it could be in front of Congress. The reports of the last twenty-four hours leading us to believe that the CEO of Facebook will have his day on the hill. And I just wonder, Eileen, as an investor, how nervous investors should be about that, given that we know this is a man that's incredibly uncomfortable under pressure in those kind of situations.
3: You know, I actually, I mean, I don't know how investors would feel. I would actually caution them that there's not too much concern here. I think he will be extremely well briefed, really well-prepped. He'll be sort of trained and conditioned to answer appropriately. And I actually think it's a good chance for sort of the air to be cleared in that there's not going to be anything that's going to come out that's going to be hugely detrimental. I think it's going to be a very straightforward, you know, here's what our T's and C's always allowed for. This is what happened. Yes, we will now take greater responsibility to make sure it's easier to understand. And we have taken these steps from A to Z already. And so I actually think it's going to be a pretty strong opportunity for Facebook to say, we did things correctly, we probably should have communicated even better about those things, and we
0: will do our best
3: to sort of help audit, monitor, and verify that these things are being abided by uh, even more so in the future.
0: Eileen, one final question, if we could. Give us an update on how you see the continent of Europe's tone of regulation of technology their reticence about the dominance of technology. Is that a trend that's growing? Is it stable or is it just a moment for them?
3: I think it's relatively stable. And to be honest, just sort of being on this side of the pond, I think it's been pretty consistent. So I haven't seen, you know, for instance, say a spike up or anything like that. I think it's been relatively consistent, whether they're looking at tax treatment or they're looking at data rights and data protection. They've been consistent and it just, does happen that the largest tech companies and the ones that are squarely in the sites of where they might want to set examples or try and use for case study it's going to be the American companies you know I think what will be interesting is if they start to take a look at you know maybe what companies from Asia are starting to do as they become more influential or they start to increase their user bases sort of over here in Europe as well but I think they would do the same by the way for a company that's coming out of Europe as well.
0: Eileen, thank you so much. Eileen Burbage, a great, great, great briefing there with Passion Capital. And, of course, with their perspective, uh, transatlantic perspective on uh, technology. For Global Wall Street, this is a great interview. Futures Up 6, down Futures Up 68. Mark Connors in the Credit Suisse team, and I love this title. Prime Services, risk and portfolio advisory, market color, and we're going to protect the copyright. We don't send it out. It is a spectacular detailed report on what hedge funds are actually doing. Doing, and Mark, I love what you summarize. Puzzling positions. I mean, it's it's a mess right now, right?
4: Yeah, it is. And you know, we always like to have one theme because that you know, not many people are can take on three different ideas at once, but. Um, when you look at the rates positioning, which now we see funds net long to ten year, why would that be when we're stair stepping up to, you know, seven or eight moves over the next two years and people are selling base metals when we have, you know, inflation and they yeah. are selling banks and we're expecting yield <clears throat> curve to rise.
0: You got all these esoteric things, <laughs> master index, long short, market neutral, blah, blah, blah. The trend guys and the commodity futures guys, they're getting hammered.
4: They why did- is that? So they, uh, January was one of the best months they had, right? But uh, January is years ago in the world of, of markets. And then they got hammered, to your point, Hammers. in February. But one reason why we are a little, con- we're pretty constructive is that they got washed out. So these folks are trend followers and they can really ramp up the equity positioning. And they took it down in Feb. They went down you know, to a bottom decile positioning. So we don't think that we're gonna have much follow through beyond where we are today on the equity markets.
0: What's the mood in raising money right now? I don't want to go into the, you know, the nite of Credit Suisse and what you're <clears> doing <throat> in prime brokerage, but can people start a hedge fund now? Or is it just brutal out there? Because people have to see 14 years of track record for you to get you know, X million of dollars going.
4: That's always gonna be the case about track record. That's great, we love your system, we love your setup and your pedigree, uh, your space that you're in, but give me a call in 18 to 36 months when you, you know, and that's when your heart sinks. So what we're seeing is a lot of platforms are seeding uh, folks and having them in-house. So they're letting the hedge fund keep their name, keep the track record if they do well, but they're going to share in the right. economics. So so the bigger getting bigger is what we
1: see. And Mark, the active guys must be loving this. I mean, the last couple of months, they must be in a better place with a VIX North of 20. So, yeah. So th-
4: what we saw was the reason why people couldn't make money was the great compression of 2000 sort of post Q116, where it was all a monolithic move higher. Yeah. Everything went higher. So now you have dispersion, but it's a be careful what you wish for Because not everyone's able to monetize the vol, right? And so it's...
1: Yeah, let's talk about that because I want volatility, I want volatility. And then all of a sudden it's, I don't want this kind of volatility. Is this good vol, so to speak, or is it bad vol? It is. So let's just look at returns, right? So what what Tom
4: was talking about with uh, returns earlier in the master index. Um, Hedge funds only caught about 40% of the downside of Feb. So market was down, hedge funds were down... Only 40 percent of it. March is going to be the test. Yeah. So we're going to find out, you know, we chaff, who the uh, adults are in the room about how they didn't march.
0: How do you respond as a grizzled prime brokerage uh, strategist and analyst when you see the media frenzy over a few select ginormous hedge fund players whether they're up X percent or down Y percent. When you see the, you know, I want to pick on Mr. Ackman right now. When you see that focus on a few guys, how does a grizzled pro like you respond to that?
4: You, you, you step back and you say, definitely a segment of the market, an individual, high profile, but, you know, we don't speak about specific managers in case they're clients. Sure. We look at the hedge fund space, still 3.1, 3.2 trillion. That doesn't even speak to the alternative beta spaces that are derivative, that some of these managers are also rolling in. They're becoming businesses. So a lot of these clients are no longer single strats, but they are multiple strategies down the margin. And I would
0: suggest in the real world of hedge funds, people are more diversified than the headline-grabbing bets that the media is fixated on. Do I have that right?
4: You did. You got to it quicker than I did. So that's why. And you're exactly right. People are no longer saying, you know what? I'm going to bet against, you know, going back decades, I'm going to bet against a certain currency pair. Yeah. Or I'm going to bet on a certain, that is out the window. I mean, John,
0: let me translate this for you. When you're at Le Bill bouquet having the Cajun chicken. I don't know what what you're talking about. A week. When you're at Le Bill bouquet, (laughs) you, you know, they introduce you to a hedge fund guy. He's way more diversified typically and way more managing his risk than all the headline-grabbing alternative investment guys. Just for the record, I've
1: only ever been to that restaurant three times, and those three times, you took me. (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> I never took myself. You took me. Look, but good I, I, I good morning. No idea where we say good morning. Is, <laughs> I know. We said
0: good morning to Reddit, keeper of the MX. Continue.
1: <laughs> did you Nine expense feral? that? Did you? Okay. You're yes. in trouble. Mark Connors, um, how important was it that the Treasury market actually took a bid yesterday in a risk off move in a significant way? We had a bit of one last week, but actually, finally, the Treasury market. Acted as a shock absorber in the traditional way. How important was that? So that's
4: that's very important because as you know, Tom was talking about the diversified hedge fund world. Not everyone is in equity long short. Some folks are playing the, that cross asset, and so when those breaks hit, um, it, it is <coughs> constructive and acts as a breaker in the market. So one reason why a note we went out today to some clients was we don't we think the market's acting well. We're not seeing a Q one sixteen deleveraging, which was massively. Um, destructive to the alternative space. Worst
1: yeah. months in five years. Something that I think a lot of people will pick up on from listening to you was something you said about the positioning of some of these hedge funds. There is a narrative out there that the, the market in its entirety is net short treasuries and net short the US dollar in quite a significant way. But I heard you say something very different about mm-hmm. the funds that you cover and about the positioning of those funds in those markets. Just walk me through it and what's driving it. Yeah,
4: it's a time frame. We think it's a tactical move and whether it's the, you know, a, longer, a lower for longer narrative um, over the outs, you know, for a period of time of one, two, three months, but it is absolutely opposite what the narrative is of rates higher, who wants to be long a 10-year when 3% is, is a given. We went out with this when it was 291, and we're 275. So right. they got it right. So CTAs are making money on rates now. Okay. And that's why people like a CTA sleeve Right. When their long equities, and they're for the, counterbalanced. For
0: those of you who are CTAs or trend-based, uh, uh, g- good morning, Monroe Trout, if you're listening, and John Henry <laughs> of the Red Sox, trend-based uh, people, that seems where my head is as well. How are the quants doing? How are the math, the studs out of Courant, NYU, or out of Carnegie Mellon, how are the quants doing?
4: Uh, they're, it's a wide dispersion. Some uh, having a tough year. Uh, again, back to uh, the volatility, they're not monetizing it. Uh, and whether because they had yeah. a tilt to the long side uh, in the you know, given what's happened in seventeen with it being a, a st- right. So where are they flat to? Either side of two percent of the
0: one question and we're gonna come back with you and keep this going. What is the short everybody wants now? They call up, they go, Well, we're gonna give you our prime brokerage, but we gotta get shares <laughs> in. What's that? It's not Krispy Kreme, right? right. I mean, we're past Krispy we're, Kreme. We're, thank God, right? Because Tesla, wasn't good what's the short now? I got, got I gotta get I gotta get four million shares short. Go. Right, so we can't
4: talk single names. Oh come Not, on! Oh, okay. I know. No one's
0: listening. I've already, on. My phone's already
4: buzzing. So thank you on that one. Um, so the the I'll speak a little broader. The Please. shorts are working. So for the, for two and a half years, you saw short underperformance eat away at alpha. I mean, hedge funds weren't producing alpha a lot because of shorts. That changed mid seventeen, and whether it was uh, the advent of. Uh, Fiscal policy, tax initiatives, what have you, um, or rates, we did see shorts start to add to the bottom line. So, whatever names you want to say, there, yeah. there is more interest in well, there. area. have
0: a Krispy Kreme donut and we'll come back. Mark Connors uh, with us with uh, Credit Suisse as we look at Prime Broker. now get brighter and smarter with Michael Mayo at Wells Fargo, and he's dragged along Elise Greenberg. We're going to talk about bb t which is own twisted story here. But Mike, I got to rip up the script and spend a good amount of time here. On You don't follow Deutsche Bank, but you can certainly talk about European banking. In your BB&T research note, you talk about how they had to go out and, quote, reduce expenses by 6% year over year. European banks really can't do that can
5: they well the u.s banks took their medicine after the financial crisis and much of this decade uh you know slimmed down the infrastructure raised capital just managed better for profitability and that's a big contrast to the european banks which are less efficient lower returns less capital and just but did, did not take their medicine with
0: your decades of experience Are they that way because of the cultural realities of those nations and those peoples in society? Or are they just afraid to be like BB&T or Bank of America or J.P. Morgan?
5: Well, there are cultural and political differences that make it more difficult, but I'd also Mm -hmm. think that... Uh, the U.S. regulators did a better job at forcing the issue with the U.S. banks. And right. as strong as the European regulators have been, it's not like one central regulator that's forcing the, the European banks to uh, get okay. to where they need to be.
0: Lisa wants to jump in here, but I got one more question here on Deutsche Bank. The, the idea here that something radical is going to happen, the easiest way to change things is the geographical change. Do you predict that any of the troubled banks, whether it's Deutsche Bank or the other list of European banks, that they're going to make geographical choices to get out of certain things in certain geographies?
5: Well, you've seen that uh, with the U.S. banks. You know, I've been here talking about Citigroup, a stock that we recommend. Um, But the U.S. is the place to be right now, and especially with some deregulation Uh, US looks a lot more favorable than Europe and so the European banks need to pick their spots to improve that efficiency, to improve their returns, to get closer to where the U.S. banks are right now. Is but they, right, The U.S. banks yeah. have extended the lead
0: in capital markets. Cool. Lisa, they should build a skyscraper on Park Avenue. <laughs> like J.P. Morgan? Yeah.
6: Uh, you yeah. know, one question that yeah. I have, I'm watching the perpetual bonds of Deutsche Bank, and they had kind of a, a freak out in the past couple of years as people started to worry that this could become a capital issue. It certainly is a profitability issue with Deutsche Bank. When does it become a a, a, a capital issue?
5: Look, the... U.S. banks have the strongest balance sheets in a generation. Uh, Certainly the, the global banking system is stronger and that includes the European banks. So the idea of the next financial crisis, financial crisis this, financial crisis that, it's been 10 decades, we're past that stage. The foundation's solid. The issue when we compare the European banks to U.S. banks is really a profitability and efficiency one.
6: You know, I do want to just uh, get your thoughts on the 210's yield curve spread, which is the narrowest that it's been since 2007. This is usually uh, a key indicator for profitability of U.S. banks. How worried are you about this?
5: Well, I know a lot of investors look at you know, the flat, flatter yield curve and say, uh-oh, look out for the banks, but that's one of many factors driving banks, and that's kind of the typical way of looking at it, but we're, yeah. what we're seeing for the U.S. banks is a 25-year structural breakout for the benefits of scale. A lot of people care there So in terms of, you know, you had national banking for the first time in 1994. This is the first time in 25 years when you can be a national bank without the distractions of big system integrations or financial crisis or new regulations. So we're looking at the structural changes as opposed to the cyclical factor of flatter yield curve. But yeah, some people care about that.
0: No, no, I was kidding. It was a joke that I have with my producer, Rich Truman. We're going back and forth on the huge headline flow. Dow up 105 points. Let us migrate to something, and I give you great credit for this, both Mike Mayo and Elise Greenberg, uh, here of not looking at the top six banks. Where does BB&T fit in? Uh, They're a regional bank. Is that a good place to start? So
5: BB&T is a different animal. They are the 10th largest bank. They're a regional bank. They're mostly in the Southeast, Mid-Atlantic and Texas. But what's unique about this bank is that they own the fifth largest insurance broker in the world. And it's a little less than one-fifth of their revenues. So as a bank analyst... Bank analysts don't know a whole lot about the insurance Got space. that right. Yeah. So we collaborate with Elise Greenspan. Um, and, you know, so I talked to my colleague, Elise Greenspan, and said, what do you think of this insurance business? What's happening in the insurance world? And that's where she came in. And By the way, Tom, yesterday we upgraded BB and T for the first time in, in many years what? to market outperform. We're, we're buyers now at BBT okay. for What's
0: the What's it like time in a while. working with Mike Mayo? Do they have to <laughs> medicate you before you work with Michael Mayo? I mean they, it's it's a it's his experience, right?
6: They do not. He's very experienced and he's a pleasure to work with. Um you know, we collaborate a lot across Wells Fargo Security. What's the
0: distinction of their insurance company?
6: So the distinction is they're they're an insurance broker, so essentially um they're they're not taking on any underwriting risk. They're not
0: doing the Bermuda thing.
6: They're not doing the Bermuda thing. That's the host of companies in Bermuda are companies that underwrite risk. So when there is losses, like all the losses we had last year, there's exposure, and they're going to take a big loss. A broker is essentially placing the business. That's what they're. That's their role, and so they can benefit. Like BB&T is positioned to benefit from a firmer envi- pricing environment. Means rates are going up. So if we take a step back here, last year was the. Highest cat loss year ever for the industry. You That's had- catastrophe bond or catastrophe generally. Catastrophe losses. Yeah. losses. I didn't so know that. anything that caused a big event, you had earthquakes. Yeah. You had um, you had hurricanes, you had fires. It was essentially the triple whammy for the industry—three events that hit in one year—and so essentially, you saw the largest level of losses. Pricing power has come back to the sector, and it's really to the benefit of insurance brokers like BB&T as well as some other co- some other you know large insurance brokers. Themselves. Is this a way of saying that they can charge people a lot more to to get covered? Yeah. So essentially, I mean, you need losses to push for higher prices. In the absence of losses, it had been many years before we actually saw a very large, significant hurricane. And so there is no pricing power if there's no losses. Is
0: your interest here of the regional bank with the insurance brokerage that they would spin it off or sell it out to someone? Or is it really part, is it a corpus of BB&T?
6: No, I think it's it's something that's unique to bb It's a capital light business that's different than the rest of their bank business. And so, essentially, I think they like the diversification that they have here. And they're looking at this as an opportunity to grow their revenue, to expand their margins, and essentially to increase the earnings oh. they're seeing from this business, as opposed to looking to sell it. So I would not expect the sale of their insurance business. And what
5: Elise <laughs> shares with me, Tom, is that these companies, the pure plays that she covers in the insurance area, are often valued about one-fourth higher than banks. So this is a premium business that bb has. And again, it's unique among you know all the banks.
0: Michael Mayo with us with Wells Fargo, and Elise Greenspan as well.